0: Good morning, I'm Joe Collins, and we are going to be closing out our series entitled Things I Wish Jesus Didn't Say Today. And uh, before I do so, I have some uh, images I want to show you. These are actual signs that I found uh, that, uh, 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 that have been posted wherever, and I want to show them to you because I found them kind of funny. So here's the first one. It says, no trespassing without permission. Here's the second sign. Slow children playing. Here's the third sign. Caution, pedestrians slippery when wet. And lastly, no parking violators will be towed. You know, these are actual signs, but they're kind of funny, aren't they? Because they're a bit ambiguous. Depending on how you read them, they might have uh, more than one meaning, right? sometimes life can seem a little bit ambiguous turn with me to Matthew chapter 5 verses 13 to 16 we're gonna pray before we read father thank you so much for bringing us together this morning thank you for this wonderful group of people and we do ask that your words speak to us now that you that you open up our hearts and and uh, uh, move in us in a, in a deep and a profound way to help us uh, become what you want us to be in this world yes, father. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out, trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your father in heaven. The passage that we read here comes from a teaching of Jesus Christ called, uh, that is found in something called the Sermon on the Mount. If you've noticed, our entire series, Things I Wish Jesus say, Didn't Say, came from his teachings on the Sermon, uh, his teachings found in the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is recorded in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. It is the most important and significant sermon ever preached. Jesus taught it early in his ministry in Galilee, which is today northern Israel. He would zigzag throughout the towns and the villages, and he would teach, and he would heal, and large crowds began to follow him. And at some point, he went up to a mountainside somewhere near the Sea of Galilee, not far from the border of Israel and Syria today. And thousands of people gathered around. And from those thousands of people, there were a group of people that he called his disciples. These were people who were more than just in the crowd. They had come out of the crowd and they had made a decision to become followers. They wanted to follow Jesus' message and his method. They wanted to to teach what he taught and they wanted to do what he did. And it was actually to that group of people that Jesus taught the Sermon on the Mount, even though there may have been thousands hearing it, it was to the followers that he taught it. Now, the Sermon on the Mount is not... Jesus' version of the Ten Commandments. That's, that's what some people sometimes think of it as. The Ten Commandments were given to Moses at Mount Sinai. The more technical word, or the better word, is the Law of Moses. Because there weren't just 10, there were, there were several hundred commandments actually in the Ten Commandments. And this Law of Moses was, a, was a, the most profound gift ever given to mankind. And uh, it, is the, it is the greatest law code that was ever devised, ever conceived of. And it was given to Moses on Mount Sinai. And, and from there, it became the, the centerpiece of the Israelite culture. The, 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 the people of Israel that were taken out of Egypt during the Exodus, they, they wandered through the desert. They came to Mount Sinai, led by Moses. There, God gave the tablets, the Ten Commandments, the rest of the law. And then the Israelite community became one of the most powerful and influential Uh, uh, nations in the world at that time, not long after receiving the Ten Commandments. And one of the reasons was, was because that law of Moses, those Ten Commandments, were so profoundly advanced compared to every other society, every other law code at the time. They were such a step forward that it couldn't help but make Israel the best place to be in the ancient world because of that, that law code that they had. And even today, that law code is still the greatest law code ever devised. Wherever that law code took root, in whatever culture or environment that law code existed, even today it's still a better place than where that law code never took root or never existed. But by the time of Jesus, this this wonderful law that had been given to the Israelites had begun to get misinterpreted and misapplied. The the scribes and the teachers of the law, those who were charged with with the responsibility of interpreting the law of Moses and teaching the people what it meant, they began to misinterpret it and they began to misapply it. And so in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus addresses many of those misinterpretations and many of those misapplications. But the Sermon on the Mount isn't only about correcting the error of Jesus's day. It's much more than that. The Sermon on the Mount opens with what we call the Beatitudes. Now, we have not studied the Beatitudes yet. We've actually, we started studying the Sermon on the Mount later, after the Beatitudes. But it begins with the Beatitudes. And there in the Beatitudes, Jesus sets the standard. Here is a description of the essential character of a follower. Not of people in the crowd, but people who have chosen to become followers. Jesus has about ten things there, eight or ten things there, that he describes as essential to what it means to a follower. And, and, and in a sense, who are they? This is who they are. These, these eight things. Then right after that, in verses 13 to 16, our text for today, Jesus describes what the, those people, if they, were to, if they were to become those Beatitudes, he describes what those people would be to the world around them. And so these passages, in, 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 so this section of the Sermon on the Mount, verses six, uh, 13 through 16 in Matthew chapter 5, describe the effect of a follower of Jesus Christ on the world around them. So what I've done in this series is, at this point I would say, well now let's dig a little deeper into the passage, and let's see if we can't understand it uh, uh, you know, on, on a whole nother level, get, get a little deeper, right? right. This time I'm gonna do something different. I'm not gonna take the next verse and begin going verse by verse and studying Now, What I'm gonna do is I'm gonna take the two concepts that are communicated in this verse, and we're gonna talk about those first. And so here's the first concept. You are the salt of the earth. Remember, Jesus is talking to followers. These are people who left the crowd, who joined his, his movement, who, who, who adopted his message and his method. And it was to those people that he said, you are the salt of the earth. The other thing I want you to note is this statement says as much about what he expects his followers to be as it does about the world in which they live. So let's talk about salt for a minute. What is, you know, salt? Well, basically salt in the ancient world was used for a lot of different things. There were some, some people say as many as 11 different things salt was, was used for. And we use salt for who knows how many things today in our day and age. I mean, it's incredibly versatile. We use it for a lot of things. But in the ancient world, it was exceptionally valuable. Today we have salt everywhere. We have really good quality salt. And you can get all kinds of salt. My wife uses Himalayan salt. It's pink salt. It's Himalayan. It's supposed to be better than any other kind of salt. I don't, I don't know why. But, you know, we're so good with salt now that we have, you know, boutique types of salt. Well, in the ancient world, they didn't really have all these varieties of salt. In fact, the salt they had was actually generally poorly, poor quality. It was mixed in with a lot of other impurities. But that salt was incredibly valuable in the ancient world. In fact, soldiers were often paid with salt. Because it wasn't easy to come by. It was hard to find. And it was so important to survival in the ancient world. Because they didn't have things like refrigeration. Salt was mainly used as a preservative. It's how you could make meat last for a long time. So when we think about salt as a preservative, what does a preservative do? What exactly does salt do? Well, it it inhibits the spread of decay. That's what salt does. It stops the onslaught of the decaying process. It slows it down. It inhibits it. Now remember, Jesus is not only talking about his disciples here. He's not only describing them. He's also describing the world in which they live in. And, and I think it's safe to say that as Jesus sees the world, he sees it as a place of decay, of dying. The world is going from bad to worse. It's not getting better, and nor will it get better. That's why Jesus' disciples are described as salt in the world, because they were to act as preservatives. They were to they were they are to act into slowing the decay of the world around them. But it's understood from the very start that they can't stop the decay. They can't put an end to it because the world is going to die. There's no two ways about it. Science has proven this 2,000 years later. We are, we are fully aware of something called the second law of thermodynamics. I'm not a physicist, uh, but I play one on TV. No, I'm kidding, I'm not a physicist. <laughs> but uh, you know I do have a little bit of a, a working knowledge of science and one of, the, one of the key fundamental principles in science is this, this idea of the second law of thermodynamics, which, which says that things are, are, are slowly decaying. They're going from bad to worse. Complex becomes simple. Simple does not become complex. If we were to leave this school today and no one was ever to enter this school again, in a hundred years it would begin to we would we'd come back and it would look like it was falling apart, even though it was never used. Right. Because just the nature of things is that they're dying, mm-hmm. they're decaying. And this is true of the world that Jesus lived in, and it's the true of the world we live in. Right. It's also true. Of the of the morality or of the of the of the culture of the world things are going from bad to worse right. and Jesus says to his followers that only you only you are the agents that can stop the decay wow. <clears throat> only you can act as a preservative on the world around you wow. I have a little pet peeve I'll share with you now. One of my pet peeves is the statement, we're gonna save the world. I know it's meant in good spirit, and I know I know people have good intention when they say it, but it drives me crazy because that's actually not what I believe Jesus calls us to do. He doesn't call us to save the world. He calls us to save people. The world is going to die. It's going to pass on. I'm not here to save the world, I'm here to save souls. And, 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 and that's what I do when I, what, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, as a follower who've been called, who, who, who came out of the crowd to join on into, his, into his community to be one of his disciples, to, to follow his message and his method. What I become at that point is an agent of preservation of souls in a decaying and dying world. I have a good friend. Her name's Donna. Some of you know Donna. A few years ago, she had befriended a woman who was going through a difficult time in her marriage, and Donna, being salt, tried to help this woman in her difficult time with her marriage. In fact, she even got myself and my wife involved with them, and we sat down with them a few times and uh, tried to do some Bible study, tried to do some marriage counseling, but it was all for naught. The, the marriage was was doomed, and it was going to fail, and, and it did fail. But But during that time, the woman had become pregnant, and she had come to the conclusion that this wouldn't be the right thing to do to bring a child into a... A failing marriage, and so she had decided to have an abortion. That's what the world tells you to do. Yeah, that's what makes sense in a dead and decaying world. But Donna acted as salt, and in, in addition to trying to help her with her marriage, and unfortunately that didn't work, she did talk to her about the life of that child, and she did help her understand that the, that that life is valuable. And and that woman decided not to have the abortion. Amen. Donna saved a life, just by being salt, just by acting as a preservative on another person. That kid is 16 years old now, in high school, basketball player, has a good relationship with both his parents, but he's here today because Donna acted as salt in this woman's life. Another thing that salt does, and, and it was known for in the ancient world, and it is known for today, and probably the second most recognizable quality of salt when we think of salt is that it enhances, it makes things taste better, right? Remember, Jesus is describing what he wants his disciples to be, preservatives and flavor enhancers, but he also is implying what the world is, and and, and the world is dead and decaying and tasteless. You know, I don't watch a lot of TV anymore, and as I've gotten older, I watch less and less TV. And then my kids have corrupted me, and now I'm into video games, so I play video games. Well, I play one video game. And, uh, but I, I play it because there's nothing in the video game that's tasteless. It's just a video game. We don't play any bad game. It's aliens, and you're trying to save people, and, you know, it's good versus evil. It's just a, a silly video game. But, you know, Every now and then I'll, I'll turn on the TV just to see what's going on. And I'm, I'm constantly surprised at the tastelessness of our culture. It's just, it's so profane. And it's, and it's so, uh, nothing's off limits, nothing's sacred, nothing's holy. And it's just constantly negative and down. It doesn't matter if it's the news, if it's, if it's regular television. I mean, just everything out there is so tasteless to me after getting away from it for a little while, after stepping back from it. And and and, and then I, I engage it, and I'm surprised at how much worse it gets every other day, it seems. Who here saw the movie Ghostbusters 2? It was a dumb one. It was a bad movie. It wasn't very good, but there was one thing in Ghostbusters 2 that really stuck with me. And, and you remember what was under the city of New York in the movie? It was like a slime or something, right? And it flowed, what did you call it? Yeah, it was pink slime. Yeah. And it flowed onto the city of New York. And what did that slime do? It, well, it made things uh, edgy, bad, negative. It, it created this negative energy. And, and I think that's what's going on in our, in our culture, in our tasteless culture. It's, it's negative. It's edgy. It's, it's constantly uh, 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 causing, putting your, t- your teeth on edge. And that's what it does. Because that's what the world does. That's what the world is like. It's tasteless. Right. You know, the word for tasteless that Jesus used in the passage uh, that we read earlier, he, he mentioned if your salt becomes unsalty right. or it loses its saltiness, that word saltiness literally translated means to become foolish. <laughs> and I think that's how Jesus sees the world. It's a foolish place. When people are left to themselves, they will become foolish. Yeah. Mm. And it's only Christianity; it's only the teachings of Jesus Christ that can make sense out of a foolish place. Right. That can enhance what is essentially tasteless. Right. Good point. I'll tell you what I mean by this. You know, my background is in psychology. I've got my master's in counseling, and and in every sociologic study that they do of people across. You know categories when they when they study people. Uh, in every category, whether it's satisfaction in life, or career, or family, or you know whatever it is, Christians always report a more favorable experience than everyone else. Yep. It's true in the world today. If you were to to be transported uh, to another country that that has no Christian influence, you would find that you would miss the world you came from because there's something better about the culture that's been influenced by Christianity compared to the culture that hasn't been influenced by Christianity. It's different and it's better. And, And it's largely because of the influence of Christianity. It has made the world taste a little bit better. It enhances the flavor, it enhances life. And so Christians across the board report a generally better life experience. We're not saying they're perfect we're just saying it's generally better you know the same was true in the ancient world if you were in the ancient world during the time of Moses and when Israelite when the when the nation of Israel was in existence and and, and they at their center they were following the, the the law of Moses you would want to get out of whatever culture you're in and get to Israel mm. because Israel was just a better place to be right. hands down Amen. and the same is true today wherever Christianity exists it makes it a better place to be Amen. compared to To everything else. The second thing Jesus describes in this uh, 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 section is this Mm -hmm. concept of you are the light of the world. He's talking to his disciples and he's describing them. What are you? You are the light of the world. Let's talk about light for a minute. Mm -hmm. What does light do essentially for us? Light reveals. If we were to turn all the lights out in this room and show to the windows, it would be dark. And we would have to feel our way around in this room. But if you had a flashlight, you would be able to see whatever obstacles are in front of you. And so light reveals what's hidden, like a, like a flashlight or like headlights on a car. Again, Jesus is describing his disciples, but he's also describing the world they live in. And he's essentially saying that the world is a dark place. Yeah. Right. For all of the world's enlightenment, you know, the, the Renaissance, Uh, uh, the Industrial Revolution, the Enlightenment era, modernity, modernity, post-modernity, right? All these different movements that have happened and we've experienced, the world is still essentially a dark place. For all of our knowledge, for all of our growth, for all of our expertise and all the things we've learned, we're still stumbling around in the dark. And it's only Christians who can act as a flashlight. It's only Christians who act as a light in a dark place and reveal what's hidden. Many of you may not have ever heard of this person, but his name is William Wilberforce. He's a famous person in history, although you probably never hear about him in school. He had a conversion to Christianity. He came to a faith in Jesus Christ, decided to become a follower of Jesus Christ. And as a result of that decision, he was the leading figure in the 1700s who ended slavery throughout the United Kingdom. One Christian who saw a darkness in the world, who saw something that the world was stumbling over, slavery, an issue that the world couldn't get out of its own way on, and he turned the flashlight on it, and he, in his lifetime, in in, in a relatively short amount of time, ended slavery throughout the entire United Kingdom. And at that time, the United Kingdom was the greatest kingdom in the world. And he did it peacefully. Peace- peaceably. they did it through law and legislation, and just ended it. That's what one Christian can do. That's what one flashlight in a dark room can do. Many of you remember the Northridge earthquake, 1994. I was living in Woodland Hills. I was on the second story of a three-story apartment complex with a parking garage beneath. And I remember waking up with the whole room bouncing around and all the lights went out and et cetera. It was in the middle of the dark. And I remember fumbling around in my room, trying to figure out my way out of the room. Couldn't see anything. Everything was rearranged and and in the way. And it wasn't until we got flashlights was the first thing we looked for was flashlights so we could see our way around. Well, that's what one Christian does in a world of people Mm. who are bumping around, who are stumbling, tripping, and falling over themselves because they're walking in darkness. And that's what Jesus wants us to see. There's another element or aspect to light that is really crucial and I think is in play in this passage that I want you to consider. And that is that light, it reveals, but it also illuminates. And that's something a little different. Reveal, you think of headlights or a flashlight. You can see what's, you know, what bumps are in the road. But illuminates, I want you to think more of a street or a runway or a path. You think of streetlights lined on a street. They illuminate the road. They show you a path. I think Jesus is trying to say that the world doesn't see where it's going. The world doesn't have a direction. It's it's hurtling headlong into nothingness. And people in the world are aimlessly walking around without any direction or any clarity as to where they should or shouldn't be going because there's no path. But Christianity is a path. It illuminates a road. It illuminates a way. The Ten Commandments were like like light posts on a street. They showed a way, a right. direction through the darkness. And that's what Christianity does today in our world. It is a direction. It cuts through the darkness and gives us a, a, a direction for Amen. our lives. Amen. Where we ought to be going. And I, I don't need to look any farther. I don't need to share any other story other than my own. When I... Uh, for many years in my life, long before I became a Christian, I was stumbling around in the darkness, and I had no idea where I was going. I had a, an idea. I had some thoughts. I had a general idea of right and wrong. I had a general idea of what I wanted to be, but I was aimless, and I was like everybody else, just following whatever everybody else was doing. And it wasn't until someone studied the Bible with me and, and, and laid out a path they showed me God's word and in, in the teachings of Jesus Christ, his message and his method. I was able to see a road in the dark. I was able to see a way in which to go. Amen. This is what true followers of Jesus Christ are to the world around them. They're salt and their light. They preserve, they enhance, they reveal, and they illuminate. Amen. So I want you to ask yourself this question. You can write this down if you want to take a note. You can write it on the connection card. You can write it on your phone. It's fine either way. Or you can just write it on a piece of paper. I want you to write this down for me. Am I following? It's a good question to ask yourself. Am I following? Now what we're gonna do, we're gonna go back to the passage and we're gonna read the parts that we didn't read before. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. You know, Jesus here is issuing, I think, a real caution. There's a real importance to what Jesus is saying here. He really wants his followers to understand that who they are Uh, informs what they are Mm -hmm. and what they were called to be was to be salt and light and when you think about salt and light I don't think it was an accident that Jesus used those two things to describe what his followers are to be to the world around them because when you think about salt and light the business of salt and light is to be salt and light in other words there's not much use for salt if it's not salt and there's not much use for light if it's not light. Their essential qualities are their only qualities. In other words, if salt has, if, if, if in other words, if salt uh, has no use if it's not salty, right? And light has no use if it's not displayed. And in the same way, the business of a follower of Jesus Christ is to follow Jesus Christ, and in doing so, they will act as salt. And light to a decaying and a dark world. Now, if a follower loses his saltiness, if he, if he isn't illuminating and, and preserving the world around him, or it loses his saltiness, if he isn't illumin, uh, preserving and enhancing the world around him, or if he isn't revealing, or he loses his light and he isn't revealing or illuminating the world around him, then that, that follower is just as useless yep. to Jesus Christ. Come on. And this is a very important question that I think every one of us in this room has got to ask because this room is full of people who call themselves followers. Mm-hmm. This is not a message for those who are visiting. If you're visiting, we're glad you're here, but you can, you can pause for a minute because I'm talking to the followers right now. Because I believe Jesus is talking to the followers right now. And I think as followers, we've got to ask ourselves a serious question here Am I following? How will I know? Because I will act as salt and light on the world around me. So let me ask you a question Who have you preserved? What have you enhanced? What have you revealed? What are you illuminating to the people around you? This is not just for us. It was not meant to be given to us and hidden under a bowl. Right? Right. A light is not meant to be hidden. This was given to us so that we would give it away. That we would be described, that, that we could be called salt and light to the world around us because we are salt and light to the world around us. And so here's the $20,000 question, how do I make sure that I act as salt and light? How do I, you know, become a follower or stay a follower if you want to put it that way? Now this is what I want you to write down on your connection card, it's a a funny little statement, I'm proud of it because I came of it on my own, you ready? How do I become a follower? How do I stay a follower? How do I act as salt and light? Here it is. Be the attitudes of Christ. Get it? The be attitudes? Be the attitudes of Christ. This doesn't mean just adopt a few good qualities. We're not talking about improving you. We're talking about Becoming something. Right. And that's a, there's a there's a substantive difference between improving yourself and becoming something else. Right. And Jesus is calling you to become his attitudes. Amen. To be the attitudes that he teaches followers to be. Amen. Now I know what you're thinking because you're thinking, well, Joe, you did your whole series on what did Jesus did, you know, say, and you took it out of the Sermon on the Mount, and we never studied the beatitudes. And you're absolutely right. We didn't start with the Beatitudes. But I'm I'm here to tell you that starting in May, we're going to study the Beatitudes. It's our next series. Losing my religion, I think is what we're going to call it. And we're going to be talking about becoming the attitudes of Christ. I think a good place to start is for every one of us to, to make it a priority to be. At those lessons I think another good place to start is for every one of us to make it a priority to bring someone else to those lessons I'd like you to look around the room there isn't a whole lot of other people in here we are in danger of being salt and light to nothing but ourselves and that's that's Jesus says that's to be thrown away that's not what this is about we're not trying to move out of the world the world's dying it's in darkness. We are called to get in there and preserve as many souls as we possibly can right. and to shine as much light as we possibly can to where we ought to be going. Right. We're not saving the world. We already know that. And we're not perfect. We're not going to do it perfectly. But, but we are to be salt and light to the world around us. And, and it can start for you and it can start for me May. When you start bringing people with you Sunday morning. You make it a priority. It's not an addition to your life. Okay, when I go to the store, I'll invite someone to come. No, that's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is becoming something different. And that becoming will influence the people around you and they'll want to come. Because people are attracted to the light. And people are looking for some taste in their life. And people are aware that there's decay and decline going on in them and around them. And they're looking for some sort of answer. And you've got to know this, Simi Valley is going to die. And it is in dark. As as many churches there are in Simi Valley, it is a dark place. And you and I are the light. It is a dying place. And you and I are the salt. And so let's get out there and let's start bringing them in here so that we can start sharing with them what's going to save them and what's going to enable and what's going to illuminate the path for them. So I'm going to ask you to do one other thing since I'm talking to the church here this morning. I'm going to ask you to go places you don't normally go because I think our tendency is to get comfortable with the kind of people we want to be. And we tend to overlook the people who are really in need. The people who are really in need of some salt. The people who are really in the dark. We're willing to go and get someone who, may, who we want to enhance and may, maybe maybe improve a little bit. But Jesus is, is calling us to do something by, by far greater than that. Right. He's calling us to find the people who are truly lost. Right. Yep. And, and I think it's our tendency to find the people who are kind of lost. Mm-hmm. If there was such a person, and maybe that's why we're not having the impact we want to have. Maybe we got to start reaching out people we're not comfortable with. We got to start reaching people that are are, that are that we can see need the help, and we got to get involved and we got to start calling them and inviting them to come and hear the words of Jesus Christ. To come and hear the Beatitudes. Side point, but just think about this for a minute. God, in the in the ancient days. Took a group of slaves in Egypt. They'd been in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. Mm -hmm. And that was who he gave his light to. He didn't give it to the powerful Egyptians or the powerful Babylonians, he gave it to a slaved people. Mm -hmm. Jesus was known to be a friend to tax collectors and sinners. He gave his light and he gave his salt to people that you would never think in a million years would would have any value in giving it to them. And that's who he gave it to. And it was those people that ultimately changed generations to come. It was those very people that once they became the attitudes of Christ, they went on to become salt and light to all kinds of people. So here's what I want to ask you to do. I want you to find the down and out, the hurting, struggling, the aimless, the lost, even the decaying, the ones that we can see and start bringing them into the church. We need to find them and we need to start sharing with them. And hey, if you bring someone else along the way, that's fine, too. We're not turning anyone away. Right. But I think we've got to get out of what makes us comfortable. And again, I'm talking to the church here, and we've got to start reaching the people who we know need it. Amen. Hopefully they know they need it, and it'll make it a lot easier for them to want to come. So beginning May, losing my religion, we're going to study the Beatitudes. The last thing Jesus says here in verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. You know, at the end of the day, a true follower cannot hide. And he cannot escape being noticed any person who functions as salt and light is going to stand out and so if you don't want to stand out then you're going to have a problem becoming what jesus wants you to become to the world around you there is a conflict there and we are going to have to ignore that we're going to have to deny that and we're going to have to allow ourselves to become something that draws attention to ourselves We're not doing this for selfish reasons. We're not trying to be superstars so that we can be full of ourselves. We're doing this to be light and salt to the world around us. And so I have a question for you. Do you really want to stand out? Do you really want to be salt and light to those near and dear to you and to those in your neighborhoods and in your communities? Because if you do, we want to help you. I want to help you. Now, in a lot of... A lot of churches, and I'm not uh, criticizing here, I'm just stating a fact. In a lot of churches, when, when, when people say, hey, I want to become something more, I, wanna, I really want to get engaged and become salt and light, that typically means a, a class or some sort of program. But in our church, it means individual attention. That's what it means. That's what we are as a church family, what we're about at our core. We're about individual attention. That means if someone is coming into the church for the first time or they're unfamiliar with with Christianity or the teachings of Jesus Christ, his message and his method, then what we tend to do is we get involved on an individual basis with that person. Any one of us in this church will go out and reach that individual person and say, let me study the Bible with you. Let me teach you the ways of Jesus Christ. That's what we do. And I think that's what the world is missing. They're not looking for another class or another program. I think what we can offer Simi Valley that's different from everything else in Simi Valley is we can offer people individual attention. There's a few of you in the room right now that I know are studying the Bible, and you're getting a lot of individual attention. That doesn't happen typically in other places. Typically, you'd be in a class or a program and 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 you fend for yourself and you might you might make a connection you might not you might get something out of it, you might not but that's what they would offer but what we're offering you is something different and for those of you that are members of the church here what what you need to know about who you are is you need to you are a person that brings salt and light on an individual level to people That's right. it's your individual connection your individual effort with an ind- another individual person that's going to make the difference. We're not going to make signs. We're not going to start a program and, and uh, you know, eradicate hunger. That's not what we're going to do. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. It's a great thing. But what we're going to do is we're going to get involved in people's lives on an individual level, yeah, on a personal level. Right. We call that discipleship. That's what we call it in our church. And we want to create that kind of culture. If you're in our church and you're not connected with another person or a couple of other people, then you need to get connected now. We're not going to wait any longer. It's time. Get connected now. If you've not established a a, a discipleship circle around yourself, a group of people that you can connect with, however you do it. I don't care how you do it. I'm not here to tell you how to do it. But I'm telling you to get it done. Find those relationships, commit to them, be consistent with them, be considerate of them, and and get this discipleship in your life. And then let's get busy being salt and light to the world around us. You know, I began the sermon with those funny pictures, you know, those street signs. And what was funny about them is that that they're ambiguous, right? The meaning, the way you read it determines the outcome of the meaning, right, or or how you're going to understand it. But I got to tell you something. This this message has been a hard message for me to, to, to conceptualize and to put together because there's nothing ambiguous about it. It is not subtle. It is one of the more direct statements I've ever come across in Scripture. And I'm always shocked at how direct Jesus is when he communicates. I want, it, I want it to be subtle. I, that's why we called it things I wish Jesus didn't say, because we want Him to polish them. We wanted Him to, to, to smooth them over or, or to round them out, but He doesn't. Right. Good point. It's not ambiguous. It's clear as day mm-hmm. what Jesus is calling you and I to be. He's calling us to be the salt and light to a dying and dark world, and anything less is worthless. Right. right. Let's go ahead and stand. We're going to pray. And we'll close out with a final song. And I really hope we can take to heart the clear message of Jesus Christ.